My name is Cyrus. I'm a student who believes in empowering education. And you're listening to Awakening the Unawakened Show, a weekly podcast where important people share important messages. Welcome, Q-Time is in Foster, brand new Awakening the Unawakened Sales episode. This is your host, Alex Martinez, and it's a real pleasure for me to have a very special guest on board in today's show. In today's episode, we'll be interviewing and discussing some technology-related topics, hand-in-hand hand with one of the greatest computer scientists out there. He's, he was educated at the University of Manchester Institute of Science and Technology, where he was awarded a PhD in 1991. He is now head of department and professor of the computer science in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Oxford and a senior researcher at Hertford College. Before this, he was a professor of computer science at the University of Liverpool for 12 years. I could go on and on with his biography. He has been chair for the 19th European Conference on Artificial Intelligence held in Lisbon. And last year, he was awarded the Lovelace Medal from the British Computer Society. And in 2006, he was also awarded the ACM Autonomous Agents Research Award. Welcome to the show, Michael Woolrich. It's a great pleasure to join you this afternoon. It's a great pleasure too. So, Mike, why don't we start with the basics? What do you mean by multi-agent system? So, um, the simplest way of saying that is it's about connecting artificial intelligence systems together. Um, so, one of the big lessons of computing since computing first started in the 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, is that at the time, computers were very large and very isolated beasts. They didn't talk to other computers. Um, but by the beginning of the 1970s, it was beginning to be recognized that actually the real power of computing uh, came from being able to connect computers together, computer networks. Uh, and it was, it was only in the 1990s that that really took off. The internet right, became a, a standard thing. And it's been completely transformative. I mean, it's, it's more than multiplied the power of individual computers. What we can do now with computers, the applications that we have and so on, uh, the World Wide Web being the most obvious example, but social media, all of that stuff. Um, is only possible because we can connect computers together. And that became apparent. The, the power of that began to be apparent uh, in the 1970s through to the 1990s. It's been completely transformative. But why shouldn't the same thing happen with AI? At the moment, almost all AI systems are isolated. If they talk to anything, it's to a human being. But why can't those systems talk to each other? Um, why can't we have uh, AI systems that can add their intelligence together, collectively solve problems uh, using different perspectives, different techniques uh, to draw upon in the same way that human expert teams do. So multi-agent systems then is, that, is all about that. It's about connecting AI systems together. And the dream is that connected AI, AI systems will be able to do more than AI systems can on their own. I see. So from what I've understood is that multi-agent systems are one thing and AI is another thing. So the key here would be just to be able to have those multi-agent systems implemented in AI, right? Because that will be the full potential of everything. Yeah, 
Yeah, um, but the challenge that we really have is that when you know human beings are social animals, right? We make our way around a social world yeah. and we successfully interact with people that we've never met. I mean, with the, the two of us have never met and yeah. we are successfully interacting. And to do that, we make use of a whole range of social skills. And language is language is the paramount example, is the is 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 the most obvious example of that. Human languages are, are the most obvious example which are unparalleled uh, in nature. But beyond that, there are a whole range of other social skills that we use. The ability to negotiate with other individuals when we need to make an agreement with them, but we disagree. You know, we don't resort to warfare by and large. We manage to figure out a solution without getting to that. Yeah, certainly. I, um, so social skills, things like coordination. How do we, you know, you're cycling along a busy street with lots of other cars and people there. That's a complex coordination task. You all manage to do that without even communicating with each other. You know, but by and large, we manage to do that safely. So how do we coordinate our activities with others? How do we cooperate? How do we solve problems uh, in teams in the same way that human uh, human beings do? So. Multi-agent systems is it starts with the idea that you th these things can communicate, but it's then building social skills on top of that, the kind of social skills that human beings have. I see. So that's actually pretty incredible to think about because, you know, it's a whole new idea that we really don't talk about it enough, I believe, because we only hear about AI, machine learning or deep learning, but not about multi-agent systems. So how would you explain the difference between machine learning, AI, and deep learning, for instance? So, okay, so AI is the broadest of those. Um, uh, AI is concerned with very, very crudely, and there's a lot of disagreement on this, and nobody really owns the definition of artificial intelligence, but, but crudely, AI is about building, building machines that have the same intellectual capabilities that human beings have. It doesn't say anything about how you go about doing that, um, and deep learning, machine learning, and in particular, deep learning is one approach to doing that, which is takes its inspiration from the microstructure of the human brain and the, 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 the human nervous system, where you have massive numbers of highly interconnected, very simple, highly interconnected cells called neurons, each of which is a tiny, like a very, very, very simple computer capable of doing only a tiny, very, very simple task. But when you connect those together in vast numbers and in vast networks, they're capable of producing human intelligence. So deep learning is about using those ideas, looking, taking inspiration from the microstructure of the brain and the kind of information processing systems that we see in the microstructure of the brain and the nervous system and trying to build computers in the same way. And it's been uh, the reason that we talk about it so much is that deep learning, which is about 15 years old, but it's had a lot of successes over the last decade. It's proved capable of doing a lot of things that we've been trying to do in AI for a very long time. Wow. Wow. Because, you know, I've seen some videos and stuff related to machine learning or deep learning where they recreate, as you say, the brain itself. And maybe you should start like with a video game in which the computer is actually trying to, let's say, solve a Mario Bros. level. And it actually begins like with failing and failing, failing, failing. And it's actually by trial and error that he gets to finally solve the problem without any kind of difficulty. And that's actually just insane to think about because it's like a small baby growing and growing. And with time, it just becomes a normal brain and a normal human. 
So, you know, so that's 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 a very popular idea. The way that that works, lots of game playing programs, programs that learn how to play games, use that idea. And it's called reinforcement learning. And the basic idea, which disguises an awful lot of mathematics behind the scenes, but the basic idea is very simple. The idea is, OK, so you don't know how to play this game. So you're just kind of randomly moving the controller. And then it turns out you do something good. You get a, you get some points, right? Okay. So what reinforcement learning does is says, oh, okay. So I got a, I got some points. And technically, we call that a reward in AI. I got a reward for doing that. And what that means is the next time the learning part means the next time that I'm in a similar situation, I'm going to do the same thing, right? Um, and that's the learning that 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 goes on. And similarly, if you do something bad, like a crash, you say, well, okay, the next time I'm in the same circumstances, I'm not going to do that because that was bad. So that's reinforcement learning. And I say that's the very simple idea. You do something good, basically it means we're in the same kind of circumstances, you're more likely to do that good thing again. You do something bad, you're less likely to do it in the same circumstances. Um, but here's the thing. To do that, to be able to learn with that, you have to crash an awful lot of Mario Karts, right? Yeah. I mean, or if you're playing Space Invaders, you get wiped out thousands and thousands and thousands of times. Now, that's fine if you're playing a computer game. It's not fine in the real world, right? So, I mean, one of the big um, applications of uh, artificial intelligence that people talk about a lot at the moment is driverless car technology. And driverless car technology is uh, is is... It's going to come at some point. It's going to be viable, commercially viable in the next few decades. But the problem is you can't use reinforcement learning for driverless cars, <laughs> right? You can't let them experiment on the road, right? No. Being wiped out, you know, this isn't a game of Mario Kart. <laughs> this is real life. So those reinforcement learning techniques, they're really good in game-like environments, in virtual environments, less good, less usable in the real world. There you have to do something different. So talking about games... I've seen you're currently researching about game theory and all that stuff, and it actually triggered me at first, because why would an AI expert need to know about game theory? So so here's the idea, right? So um, uh, suppose uh, next generation Siri in 10 years' time, right? We've all got Siri or Alexa or Cortana or whatever it is on our phone, right? And those are the things, we call them agents, right? Those are the things that we've been working on building for the last 30 years, these software agents, which are embodied on your, on, on your phone. And it's a piece of AI software. And the dream is that that's AI software, which is working for you. So my Siri is working for me. And at the same time, your Siri is working for you. So let's take a simple example. I need to book a meeting. So at the moment, you know, I phone you up, I'll send you an email, I'll set up a doodle poll that you complete, so on. The dream is that my Siri will just be able to talk directly to your Siri to set that meeting up. Why should people be involved in that, right? But here's the thing. Um, I have preferences about when to meet, right? I don't like meeting before nine in the morning. I always like to keep a lunch break clear and so on and so on. I have all those preferences and you have the same sort of you have preferences of your own in the same way. So in cases like that, we need to equip our Siri with the ability to get a good deal for ourselves. And that's where the game theory comes in, because what game theory is to do with is exactly about that. It's where you have interacting self-interested entities and the entities that are interacting here are your Siri and my Siri. And they're interacting with one another, trying to do the best uh, that they can on behalf of their owner. It actually makes sense now because with everything you've said about the multi-agent systems and how communicating between those AIs in this case 
Siri and, well, my Siri and your Siri would actually, you know, unfold the full potential of this. And, well, moving on, we will later be speaking about the driverless cars too. But I recently saw the imitation game on Netflix and I really enjoyed the films. I wasn't really aware of who Alan Turing was and everything that he actually did for computer science as we know it today. But they talked about the Turing test and I couldn't really grasp the how it worked. So how would you describe the Turing test? So Turing was, uh, was, was writing uh, in, I think, 1950. And at that time, computers were a very new thing. They'd been around just for a couple of years since the end of the Second World War. Um, and the very first commercial computers were just about to become available. And of course, they were incredibly expensive and you needed a PhD in order to be able to operate one. It's not the same at all as the present day. And this got a lot of people thinking about the possibilities for the first time, seriously thinking about, well, could machines be intelligent? And what would it mean for a machine to be intelligent? And how could we tell whether a machine would, uh, uh, would be intelligent? And what Turing was, uh, was after was to answer, try to answer the question of whether or not machines could basically understand in the same way that people can. So what he said was, okay, this is what we do. Imagine we're gonna set up a test. And what we're gonna do is this test is going to be for something that we want to test for understanding. We want to know whether this thing understands, right? So it could be a machine or it could be a person. We don't know what it is. Um, so the way that we're going to do that is we're going to be allowed to interact with this thing, which could be a machine or it could be another human being. Um, but the way that we're going to interact with it is, well, it could be just by writing notes and giving them to somebody who takes them out of the room and passes them over to this other thing. Or it could be through a typewriter, through a, what we now call a, a computer terminal. Right. So you, 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 you type questions basically on this computer terminal right. or write notes and to pass to this thing. And then after that, this thing on the other end that you are trying to test for understanding, and I emphasize you don't know whether it's a, uh, a machine or a person, um, gives you answers. And you just carry on typing your questions, talking with this thing, having a conversation with this thing. Okay, so Turing's point was this. Suppose after some period of time, let's say half an hour or something like that, you just don't know whether the thing is a person or a human being. You can't tell whether it's uh, whether it is or is not a human being. And in particular, suppose that this thing convinces you that it really is a human being on the other end, right? Well, in that case, Turing said, the question about whether or not it is really understanding the, the exchange that you had in the same way that a human being would do, or whether it's really intelligence is immaterial because it's doing something that you think is completely indistinguishable from the real thing. You can't tell it apart. So it's meaningless at that point, according to Turing, to have a big long argument about whether it was really understanding uh, the conversation, the dialogue in the same way, whether it really understood what was going on in the same way that you would say a human being would understand. Because you can't tell it apart, you can't distinguish it from the real thing, Turing said you may as well accept that it has understanding, because otherwise you know, what does it mean to exhibit understanding if it's doing something that you can't distinguish from understanding? So that's the beauty of Turing's test. I mean, it was a very, very ingenious idea uh, and has prompted an awful lot of debate subsequently. Indeed, because I just, you said it was like around the 1950s. And when I think the technology that was available those times, 
I actually just think Alan Turing was way ahead of his times, and you know, he managed to do those sort of things which would nobody think of. That's insane. Yeah, absolutely. So he had. I mean, Turing. Turing was a visionary in so many ways. It's 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 quite hard to believe these days that he did so much. I mean, essentially, while he was a PhD student, he was working on a really difficult mathematical problem. Um, a mathematical problem that had been posed in the 1920s and he solved it. And it was one of the most famous mathematical problems of the 20th century. And he solved it as a PhD student in the space of about 18 months, which is really astonishing. Wow. But the interesting thing was as a side effect of solving that problem, he had to come up with uh, machines, uh, machines that could do things, machines that could follow instructions. So he came up with this model and we call them Turing machines. But the truth is Turing machines are basically computers. So just purely as a side effect of what he was working on, solving this huge mathematical problem, which just in its own right would have made him sort of you know, famous, immortal in mathematical terms, he invented computers. And 10 years later, people were building them, right? Through, he invented them in the 19, mid 1930s. 10 years later, they were being built. They were being built in, in the United Kingdom. They were being built in Germany. They were being built in the United States. 15 years later, you could buy one. And then he went on from that to more or less invent artificial intelligence. So it's an astonishing range of things. And that's not even to talk about what he did in the, in the war to do with the code breaking work, which was in its own right was remarkable stuff. Um, so yeah, he was individual, and it's one of the great scientific tragedies of the 20th century that he died. Uh, he died so young. I mean, he was only in his 40s, in his early 40s when he died. And to think what he might have done if he'd had a full, a full lifespan is is uh, is really tragic. Definitely. I mean, as you said, he's done awesome things, and as seen on the film, uh, I just recommend everyone to see the Imitation Game on Netflix if you haven't already done so. Because with the code breaking thing and Enigma and all those sort of things were, were just incredible for me. But moving on, also some people, we've, we've said that AI was like, well, not AI, but machine learning itself was like some sort of brain. And they assume that AI is going to be capable of thinking like human, like human brain. Others believe that AI learns on its own, while reality is that we humans have to fit it with data, which was the reinforcement learning that you just discussed. And last but not least, everyone says that AI will replace humans. Would you agree with what I just said? What would you say are the common misconceptions about AI? I think the commonest misconception about AI is that people imagine it's like the Hollywood movies. I mean, because we see these <laughs> great Hollywood movies, and I love them as much as everybody does, where you see you know, very convincing portrayals of robots that are, um, you know, uh, that that are more that are stronger and more agile than human beings, and robots that are smarter than human beings, and all that kind of stuff. And it's great for movies and books and so on, but it's a long way from where the reality of AI is. So the, actually that kind of dream, that actually the stuff that Turing was talking about there, the dream of building machines that you know, have human level understanding, actually that's kind of on the fringes of contemporary AI. Where the real action is in AI is about getting machines to do very specific, very, very narrow tasks. Now, that could be driving a car. It could be recognizing faces in a picture. It could be putting captions onto pictures. It could be translating a sentence from French into English or from English into Spanish um, and so on. But these, each of these things are actually 
tiny, tiny, narrow slivers of things. And a human being can do, you know, uh, you could probably do all of those things that I just mentioned, right? Um, uh, you know, and you can do infinitely more besides that. But with, with AI, what we focus on is just getting machines to do these very, very, very narrow things. And we've succeeded, as I say, in the last 15 years, we've had a lot of successes, but in this very, very narrow kind of AI. And you can't add all those different things together to make the general kind of AI, the Hollywood dream. So I say the biggest misconception is thinking that what we're trying to do is the Hollywood dream and that that's not what we're trying to do. We're focused on very narrow, very specific tasks. So talking about the future, which is, well, reality is that nowadays, as you said, is just focused on specific tasks, but what would your thoughts be about the future when it comes to AI and what is your favorite use case too? Because, you know, right now it's just specific tasks, it might be driver driving a car or and so on, but what about maybe 15 years from now? So 15 years, I think we will see a lot of advances. I don't think we will see general AI. I think the, the killer use case, the one that really excites me is healthcare. Uh, and in particular, I mean, I'm wearing an Apple watch and you may be wearing a, uh, your own brand of uh, wearable tech. Um, but these are kind of, you know, you've got to imagine that these are, these are what second or third generation devices. I think maybe mine's a sort of a, um, mine's a series four, I think. So, you know, it was just four years after the original Apple watch was released. So you've got to imagine this is like mobile phones were in the 1990s and if you think how far that technology has come since then in the quarter century since then and now think how far wearable technology is going to go in the next 25 years and for healthcare in particularly i think it's going to be transformative i think you we're going to carry with us devices which can monitor our physiology on a constant basis and they will know when you're stressed they will know when um you know they will know when your blood sugar levels are out of the ordinary they may be able to detect the signs of heart disease or dementia or maybe the, the, uh, the, the signals of an oncoming stroke. Now, there, are, there is research in the laboratory right now that's looking at all that kind of thing. It's not there yet, um, but I say, imagine you've got to think what this technology is going to look like in a quarter of a century's time. That, I think, really has the power to be transformative. And I think it it potentially is going to give people control over their healthcare in a way that, that we just don't have at the moment. I mean, so I don't know if it's different in, in Spain, but just setting aside the pandemic for the moment, forget about the pandemic. How often do you see your doctor uh, in an average year? Once, maybe twice, if you're unlucky, most people, yeah. um, you know, as a, as, a, as a reasonably healthy adult, you know, and actually I think we we figured out that my daughter, who's 18, she's coming up to 19 this year, she hasn't actually seen her doctor since she was about 11 years old. Wow. You know, so that's seven years that she's gone by without without ever having to see a doctor. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, except that, you know, it, it, the idea of carrying with you something which can monitor you on a continual basis throughout your life, you know, that's being continually fed these data streams about your state of health and feeding them to the smartphone in your pocket or maybe encrypting them and uploading them to the cloud where AI is being able to use to analyze those and give, give you feedback about, you know, about your state of health, about, you know, your blood sugar levels are out of the normal range, you know, perhaps you need a diabetes test, you know, that kind of thing. Now, I emphasize the technology is not there yet, but all of that kind of thing is is being studied in the laboratories. So 
that I think is is really exciting. It's healthcare, which has really transformative potential. Yeah, and as you say, it's just small steps that we're going towards that, let's say, idea that you just said, because with the Apple Watch, you can now see your different statistics about your heart. May you say, well, you have some heart problems, or even if you fall, you can detect the falls and say, we might have to call 911 or the emergency services. So that's yeah. one great and huge advance when it comes to healthcare, obviously. But may, some people may claim that despite those benefits, there could also be some risks because of the huge amount of information that AI has to be fed with in order to get those decisions right. So are we really considering the benefits versus risk ratio? Or, is this, or would you say there's no way that AI can pose such risks to our society? Oh no, it it does, and actually, I think you've put your you've put your finger very neatly on one of the biggest conundrums for AI right now. And the conundrum is this: AI can do those things for you, but the 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 quid pro quo is that you have to give up data about yourself. Um, and these things are intimate devices, right? I mean, they're providing very, very intimate information about you, information which nobody else, you know, I say, you don't see your doctor more than once or twice a year, they don't have that information about you. This thing knows, you know, it knows when you're drunk, you know, it knows when you're exhausted, it yeah. knows when you've been eating too much chocolate. Yeah, silly example, but you see what I mean. And so that navigating our way in that world and find, finding a way to take the benefits that AI offers without sacrificing, sacrificing, you know, our personal privacy and so on. That I think is, is a big challenge. One of the defining challenges for AI of the present time. Yeah. Because you said, you know, it's just at the end of the day, it's up to the individual if he's willing to share all that data or not. So maybe we might find some hurdles and obstacles in that path. I th there, there absolutely will be hurdles and obstacles. And the difficulty is um, empowering people to understand what is being shared about them uh, and how they can manage that and the consequences of sharing that, you know, what it would actually mean. I mean, you don't have to think very hard to see very scary, scary scenarios to do with uh, getting insurance, for example. Um, so there are already cases of in the United States, possibly elsewhere, where insurance companies are saying, well, we'll give you we'll give you life insurance. But you have to you have to let us monitor you with an Apple Watch and you have to deliver, you know, certain targets each month in terms of exercise and so on. Now, that might be harmless in itself for now, but where that leads, um, you know, is a bit scary. I mean, it leads potentially, um, you know, what it, to, to a, a position where that technology can easily be abused and it can be abused by. Uh, insurance companies refusing to provide cover for people that either don't want to disclose that data about themselves or um, uh, or uh, prove to be you know uh, susceptible to particular conditions like diabetes or whatever um so there are many scary possible trajectories for that and I say uh, you know that I say finding our way through that um, getting the benefits of the AI without suffering the many possible disadvantages, that's going to be a challenge for us. It is. And, you know, today's world is one which is certainly polarized when it comes to every single topic. And it's just every single one. So everyone has its own opinion and maybe social media 
is uh, helping to get this polarization in a way. And as you know, everyone share in the tweet or something, there it's his own thoughts. And maybe even with fake news, with fake information, which can lead to more mistrust with, you know, with regards to AI. And that may, you know, in a way hurt AI itself. And well, fake news, I think, is another area. Um, I mean, so the technology exists now that can generate very plausible fake news stories, you know, one paragraph stories that just look completely convincing. And it turns out people are gullible, right? You and I are gullible. We're not used to dealing with a world which is where there is more misinformation than information. By and large, we tend to be quite trusting and take things at face value. Um, so I am concerned about what will happen to what would happen to Twitter if it is, you know, if there are 10 times more fake news bots than there are actual people, you know, and that presumably Twitter will try to prevent that. I hope they will. But, you know, how will you how would you navigate a world of social media where there is just much more misinformation than than truth? Um, that, I think, is challenging. But even beyond that is the possibility for AI to develop essentially alternative realities for people. So imagine, you know, again, in, in 20 years time, you're wearing an equivalent of Google Glass, which is a pair of glasses which have, have built in projectors inside. So they project onto a tiny screen in front of your eyes. Um, uh, data about what you're seeing. So there are some very harmless ways of using that technology. So I'm not very good at recognizing people. It's always constantly embarrassing for me. <laughs> so technology that would recognize somebody and just remind me discreetly who that was would save me an awful lot of social embarrassment. But actually, what happens if that technology is just presenting you with a fake picture of reality, stuff which is not actually there? Um, uh, and what does that mean for society then? I mean, it means that we simply can't trust, um, can't trust uh, what we're what we're what we're seeing anymore. You know, they no longer have the idea of uh, a trusted witness because everybody is viewing the world in a in a different way. And it's the the AI there is the AI that's used to generate that alternative reality. Um, now, the technology is the technology is 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 possible. Um, it's not there yet. I mean, it's decades away, probably, but uh, but it is possible. I think that's not that is not in the realm of science fiction. That is a um, something which I think is feasible. And so, you know, we've got to deal with that. We've got to look at how we manage that and what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable. You've got multiple points here, Michael, because it's true, and we've we've seen it in both sides, even because. There's one side with AI generating fake news or maybe deep fakes with videos of someone else saying something that he never said or maybe creating alternative pictures of reality. But we also have the other side of AI maybe trying to block those videos from, uh, let's say, spreading in social media with algorithms and so on. So it's actually a war between AI and AI and also people behind it in a way. But it's certainly scary and... You know, hopefully we'll get to a good point in the next years without the need of having to limit the potential that AI really has. Yeah, for the moment, I have to say that AI attempts to spot fake news, particularly fake news that's generated by people. People can outfox AI at the moment, just make it very difficult to spot um, subtle fake news messages. Um, 
and so that the, there is I, the, you're right there is a battle to um, to for, for AI fake news detectors to to get ahead of AI fake news generators um, but we at the moment we aren't winning that battle and uh, you know there's a lot more work that needs to be done uh, to get us there yeah well fingers crossed that everything just goes fine in the next years but there's someone I would like to talk about, and this person is Elon Musk. He has repeatedly stated that DeepMind is his top concern when it comes to AI. What's your take on Elon Musk's Musk approach with everything that he's been doing with SpaceX and Tesla? Is he the man of the future? Um, I think he is. Um, I think, I mean, the things he's done, I mean, I think where he first made his fortune was with PayPal, which was visionary and, and, and transformative. Uh, and, you know, there were lots of other alternative systems out there to PayPal, but PayPal worked because one, because it was, it was just the best of them. Um, and that was, you know, that was visionary stuff. And I think what he's doing with Tesla and SpaceX is similarly visionary. Um, uh, almost by sheer force of sort of will, he's making these things work. Um, now, uh, on paper anyway, the world's richest man. Um, two completely transformative technologies, the way that they're approaching, uh, the, the way that they're approaching uh, uh, the space industry and the way that they're approaching the electric car industry. But for all that, I do not think that Elon is tremendously well informed about AI right now. I mean, and just to pick, you know, with the very greatest respect to somebody that's achieved a great deal more in his life than I have, <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's tremendously well informed about AI. And I'll give you a specific example. Um, so the, 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 uh, the automated driving facility that comes in Tesla's car, which is called Autopilot, um, uh, it's, it's hugely impressive technology, and I've no doubt that it, you know when when the history books are written, ultimately it will prove to have saved lives potentially on quite a dramatic scale. And so I, it's hugely impressive technology, but it's Elon continually overstates it. I mean, there is a five, there's a, a scale for driverless car technology, which, which is at level five in this driverless car scale. It means you've got cars with no steering wheels, right? No steering wheels, and the passengers in the front are looking at the passengers in the back that's the way that the seats are facing so human beings never intervene in in uh, in level five technology down to the bottom level where it's there's no automation of decision making whatsoever in the car everything that happens happens because the human driver makes it happen and what's happening is we're gradually creeping up that scale but tesla's autopilot at the moment is around about level two the problem is elon talks about it as if it's level four and it really isn't level four technology yet. And that's actually potentially risky, I think, because it encourages people to believe that the car is a lot safer than it actually is, that a lot less attention is needed from them. Now, to be clear, Tesla are very precise in their instructions. You should always have your hands on the steering wheel. You should always be ready to take control. But, you know, if bigging up that technology and making out that, you know, where level five technology is imminent, which Elon has said, I think he said he expected in 2020, by the end of 2020, there was going to be half a million robo taxis on the streets, Tesla cars that were just um, uh, that were just uh, in turning themselves into automated uh, taxi driving services. You know, it didn't happen and it was never going to happen. So these these sort of wild statements, I think, are a bit unfortunate. And I do wish. 
I do wish you didn't make them. Um, you know, and I say, this is somebody who's achieved hugely more in their life than I have. And I have nothing but respect for, for those accomplishments, but, um, but I wouldn't pay too much credence to the pronouncements about AI. I see. And yeah, I mean, you're right because yeah, and that's your own opinion, but you're one of the, you know, you know what you're talking about in that aspect because <laughs> you, that's your whole life dedicated to AI and so on. So it's really interesting to see how you think about Elon. And I agree with what you said, but I, I just try to question myself about how is it possible or maybe what separates the current level of, uh, let's say, level two of driverless cars that Tesla has with what Elon claims to have in like level four. So what's the main difference between those levels? So um, the, 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 the main thing is this, you can, it's, it's feasible right now to have driverless car technology, which will deal with routine driving in fairly predictable circumstances. So, you know, the, 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 the busiest, the, the fastest roads in the United Kingdom, motorways, um, uh, you know, these three lane roads where everybody is driving between 60 and 70 miles an hour, typically. Um, and uh, in those kinds of circumstances, you know, where there, there, you know, there are no sudden turns on these motorways, there are no sort of unexpected, you know, you're not going to suddenly find a flock of sheep crossing the road. Um, you know, you're not going to find children playing. You know, there are, there's very little that's unexpected. Driving in those kinds of circumstances, automated driving in those kinds of circumstances, predictable circumstances, I think it appears to be pretty much in the bag. The technology is there. Where the technology is limited is dealing with completely unexpected circumstances. So where suddenly a child runs out in the road or where just something which, you know, you could have taken a thousand hours of driving lessons and you would never have seen before. Right. A human being, when they encounter that, they've got their experience in the world to call upon. Driverless car technology doesn't. Um, there are other um, limits to this technology as well. So the technology, the really tough stuff in driverless car technology is understanding what's around you, where you are and what's around you in your environment. That, that's, that's the biggest challenge in driverless car technology. And that is where deep learning, the technology that I talked about earlier on, uh, that's where that's proven to be very, very successful. But that technology is brittle. And it turns out that, for example, with road signs, you know, which car needs to be able to interpret a road sign, you know, a speed limit or, you know, some obstacle up ahead, uh, maybe a temporary obstacle. That's something that was just not usually there, but which is there sort of temporarily overnight or something like that. The car needs to be able to interpret those signs. And it turns out that you can just make tiny little changes to the signs, which means that the technology can't make any sense of it at all. Um, just tiny changes the human being may not even notice, but which completely throw the car, um, the driverless car technology, and it doesn't know what it's encountering anymore. How are we to deal with, you know, with, with those kinds of situations? Are we comfortable putting cars on the road that have those kinds of limitations? And for the moment, I think the answer is, the answer is no. So the technology has got still got a way to go before it gets to the level of being able to jump in a car and say, you know, drive me to Barcelona or whatever, you know, the, um, the technology still got a way to go. And in a nutshell, it's dealing with the unexpected, encountering the unexpected, interpreting the unexpected. 
as human beings, we can call upon our experience in the world to be able to do that. But driverless cars don't have that benefit. Definitely. And, you know, just as you said, the different and the slightest variations with anything can really pose a difference with how machine interprets the everything. And that's how it is. But we have to also to remember that it's not only driverless cars or the driving industry. We also have like the space and the airplane industry with their own versions of AI. And that actually seems like even easier to think about because there are no such variations in which a car may deal with. And because, you know, well, it's difficult. But with SpaceX, for instance, just to think that a, a single rocket is like landing in its own without any pilot, that's just <laughs> completely insane. And it's making space travel reusable. And that's thanks to AI. It's like, hell, that's just amazing, right? Yeah, I don't know. I've got to tell you the truth. So I've seen those videos as well, and they're they're astonishing, particularly when they when they basically land in formation. The boosters, you know, the two of them land next to each other. And I guess there probably is AI there. I'm not sure how much AI is there, um, but that's an interesting question. So it would be good to know. I'd, I'd be curious to know that. I mean, there's certainly some really, really, really clever control engineering that's gone into them. I don't know how much AI specifically. Right. Thank you, Michael. I think it's now time to come to, to an end, but I would like to end with something. And you've written two science introductions to AI, which are the Ladybird Expert Guide to Artificial Intelligence and the Road to Conscious Machines. Which one would you recommend everyone listening to read first? Ah, okay. So the two... They're two books with similar goals that cover similar territory, but they're very different styles of books. So the Ladybird book is in a, this was a very famous series in the United Kingdom and they're very short books. They're quite physically quite small books. Oh, I should have brought one up with me, but I didn't think to, um, but they're very unchallenging. Um, you know, they're, you know, it's, so if you find science threatening in any way, that's the one to start with, the Ladybird Expert Guide, because it's very unthreatening. And that's the whole point of the book, that it's it's presenting deep scientific ideas, hopefully, in a very unthreatening, non-challenging way. But if you enjoy that and you find it interesting, or if you just like you know, a deeper, longer read, but more about the, you know, a lot more about the history and the characters and the detail, then The Road to Conscious Machines. Um, despite the title, Conscious Machines plays a relatively small part of the book. It's really the story of AI, how we got to where we are with AI and where this technology is likely to be going. Um, so they're, they're books with a similar goal, similar purpose. Um, and, but I say, if you, know, if, if you want an unthreatening introduction to AI, then uh, the Ladybird Expert Guide to AI. You know, if you want a longer read and you're, you know, you're prepared to spend a few more hours, then The Road to Conscious Machines is the one, to you, one for you. They actually both sound great, Michael. I'll be leaving both links into the show notes for anyone that might be interested. Just check them out and buy them if you wish. I'm sure you'll enjoy. I personally would go with Ladybird Expert Guide to Artificial Intelligence too, because you know, it's that's the I actually don't have a really good level of knowledge with all this computer science stuff. So I just feel like a good introduction would be helpful. So thank you, Michael. Is there anything you'd like to say, promote, or you know, whatever? No. 
Uh, all my best to your listeners. Hope they're staying safe in these difficult times. But uh, if you do get one of my books, I hope you'll learn from it and I hope you'll enjoy it. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. It's been a great pleasure for me having you on my show. And uh, as always, folks, thanks for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed. This is your host, Alex Martinez, switching off 